Hi, my name is Ken Mobley. I'm a faculty member at the University of Iowa in the Department of Health and Human Physiology. By training, I am a certified recreational therapist and began my work in Cincinnati, Ohio uh, in long-term care. Um, a lot of hip fractures, heart disease, stroke, substance abuse among the LLA at a large county health facility in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, I came to Iowa in 1976 for one year to get a master's degree and was fortunate to get interested in teaching and research, had some pretty good mentors, and long story short, I wound up staying around and pursued my PhD in what was then physical education and finished that up in 1981 and again was very lucky to uh, secure a faculty position in the Department of Leisure Studies which is now part of a larger Department of Health and Human Physiology. Uh, most of the information that I'm going to be talking about today is a mix of some research that I've done but a lot of practical experience uh, in the mid-1990s, my wife and I, uh, my wife Paula is a faculty member over in the College of Nursing, began a strength training fall prevention program for seniors at the Iowa City Senior Center in Iowa City. Um, and from there, I guess the rest is history. The program was very popular. Uh, lots of in other individuals have uh, decided to offer a variety of different exercise programs at the Senior Center and uh, it's a wonderful facility but the entire lower level is now dedicated to health promotion and fitness. Uh, there is a open fitness room, there is a strength training room, there is a cardio room with exercise machines, treadmills, bikes, air um, elliptical machines. So it's uh, from a, a small idea where we started our strength training program in what was then the music room. It's uh, evolved into pretty much a, a very good health promotion fitness program for older adults. Uh, so that's kind of my background and where I'm coming from. And uh, we'll go from there. I have uh, no financial relationship with any of the companies supporting this educational event. The first thing uh, I guess I want to establish is uh, the need for exercise among older adults, in particular strength training types of exercise. Uh, most of you who are interested in older adults and exercise, older adults and fitness, older adults and the prevention of falls or at least reducing the risk of falls uh, know the heavy cost that is paid by older adults when they do fall. Uh, the statistics are pretty grim and uh, it wouldn't take uh, very much to do a library search and find some comparable statistics, but I just have a few here for you. Um, you'll beg my pardon if I do read these so to get through this slide, uh, just to establish the need. The estimated number of falls per year ranges from about 1 in 3 to 3 in 10, and that's among healthy older adults. Uh, the statistics are even uh, more startling and attention-grabbing if you take a look at older adults who are in a nursing home or a skilled nursing facility at about 60%. Now certainly not every fall results in a hip fracture, not every fall results in a head injury, but just the fact that there is that risk exposure is, is pretty startling. And I suppose the first statistic is even more 
attention-grabbing for me than the second one, insofar as uh, these individuals are pretty asymptomatic. Once older adults uh, do fall, of course, uh, the risk of serious injury, notably hip fractures, is, is quite substantial, and 90% uh, of hip fractures, of course, no big surprise there, are associated with falls. 10% uh, of the falls among the very old, 85 and older, do cause a hip fracture. Certainly that's uh, aggravated by the fact that a lot of these folks do have osteoporosis and make them quite vulnerable to uh, uh, fractures of any sort. 50% uh, of hip fractures cannot return home. And this is actually a statistic I do use with uh, the classes I teach at the Senior Center to uh, I suppose motivate people. Most of the folks that I work with do continue to live independently or somewhat independently, either in their own home or a uh, condo or an apartment or assisted living, and they do treasure and really value their independence as much as that as they can hang on to uh, uh, the better for them. They want to be independent, and uh, this is a real um, attention-getter among the folks that I work with. The leading cause of injury deaths among those that are 65 and older is falls, uh, actually ahead of automobile accident fatalities. Uh, falls are responsible for 70% of the accidental deaths of those 75 and older, and 20% of those with uh, a hip fracture will die within one year. So it is a uh, very, very serious injury, very, very serious, more or less epidemic. And I, I certainly know people, folks in my own family that uh, older aunts and uncles as they grew older and uh, everything seemed fine. And then all of a sudden somebody falls, breaks a hip and all lo and behold, we discover that they have uh, serious heart disease, they have uh, dementia of some sort, uh, they have a host of other problems that seem to be uh, resting beneath the surface and, and latent until the fall kind of precipitated uh, kind of a downward spiral. So it is, uh, if not the cause, at least perhaps a precipitating event in uh, spiraling the individual out of control and eventually, certainly toward more dependency, if, if not, uh, if not uh, ultimate demise. Um, just to show you that it's uh, not just uh, older adults in senior centers who fall and, and unfortunately eventually die, um, it is uh, various celebrities. Uh, example here, David Brinkley, one that's closer to home, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, the uh, famous author who uh, was very involved in the Iowa Writers' Workshop, uh, also died of a fall. Uh, one of his friends at his funeral said uh, he always thought he would die of lung cancer because he was a chronic and heavy smoker. But he fell, uh, as I understand, on his front porch stoop uh, in New York City. And uh, I believe he wound up hitting his head. and and died as a result. So it is a serious illness that affects the famous and the not so famous, and no one is immune. So why should uh, older adults exercise? Well, first of all, you do probably have quite a bit longer to live. Um, obviously, um, 
in the news today with Social Security uh, being questioned relative to its solvency. Uh, the life expectancy of individuals has gone up uh, quite a bit of time. So uh, back in the 1930s when Social Security first started, uh, everybody figured that even if you had to pay Social Security for a few years, the person probably wasn't going to live a lot longer. And gosh, who knew? People are uh, more and more likely to live uh, to age 80 and, and even longer. And uh, obviously, you'd like to be functional, independent, and, uh, and uh, self-determined as much of that time as you possibly can be. Um, so... Um, I work on a lot, maybe more than anything else, is convincing uh, the people that come to my programs, predominantly older adults, if you don't do anything, um, it's not okay. Um, that if you do nothing, you're actually deteriorating. Uh, lots of folks I work with think, okay, well, if I sit down or if I uh, uh, abstain from physical activity, I may not be getting better, but I'm not getting worse. And that, of course, is most of you probably know, is a fallacy. When you do nothing, something is happening, and something no good, unfortunately, is happening. Uh, we become unfamiliar and less stable with respect to posture. That's uh, certainly relative to both uh, uh, stable posture, uh, static balance, for example, as well as dynamic balance, how well do you balance when you're moving around. We uh, work on both those things in the, in the programs that I run, uh, the strength training programs. So um, muscle tone and uh, muscle strength are intimately related with one's ability to balance, particularly, uh, for example, we give our folks a, a static balance test. It's called a stork stand. It's basically just standing on one foot, see how long uh, they can balance. For the most part, uh, not very many of them can balance uh, the entire time we allow, which is up to a minute. Uh, compare that to young adults. I run my students through this program and they easily balance uh, on one foot for a minute. So you clearly see a, a lot of problems there. How well do you balance when you're changing direction? Dynamic balance. Uh, this is when older adults are actually most at risk when they're changing directions, when they're moving around uh, the fluid inside their semicircular canals and causing some instability. Uh, if they have some other sensory deficits relative to, say, vision, uh, poor um, understanding of uh, joint sense or proprioception, those add to, to the risks. Perpetuation of a sedentary lifestyle. I, I think I want to kind of put this with the next point of chronic muscle weakness because they, they kind of go, of course, hand in hand. And it's related to the comment I made earlier. If you are doing nothing, it doesn't mean that you are stable and not getting any worse. Indeed, you are getting worse. Um, of course, uh, most of you probably know that, say, you send an astronaut up into space in a weightless condition over a sustained period of time, what winds up happening is that the person loses bone mass uh, and they come back uh, oftentimes with uh, uh, quite a bit of mineral loss in, in their skeleton. And that's part of the reason why the United States doesn't keep their astronauts up in weightless conditions for uh, a long, long time. And part of the reason why 
uh, occasionally when you have uh, film clips of the astronauts that are up there in a in a weighted vest or doing some resistance training and trying to promote or at least minimize uh, uh, loss of mineral content from bone. Well, of course, your muscles are going to react uh, react the same way. Uh, if they don't have to do any work beyond what's normal, they're not going to get any stronger. That, of course, is exacerbated in a weightless condition. So we need to challenge our muscle systems, not inordinately so, but we need to expect our muscle system to do maybe a little bit more work than it's accustomed to in order to get a little bit stronger and, and maintain function. So uh, a sedentary lifestyle kind of feeds on itself. Um, you know, certainly all of us have felt uh, at times that we'd like to just sit down and relax and all of us, including me, give in to that that uh, bout with uh, uh, being tired and just wanting to relax. But uh, it is important to challenge in, in a small way your muscle system every day, or at least most days of the week, to avoid uh, getting worse and losing uh, the uh, substance of, of muscle and seeing the muscles get smaller and weaker. Condition called frailty. There's a, a fancier name for it called sarcopenia, but I think frailty uh, is uh, more understandable and a little more uh, user-friendly than, than the fancier term. Uh, I put these three together. Um, of course, when we have folks exercise and we we um, do strength training in particular with uh, the older adults that I work with, we of course want to avoid actual falls. Uh, we want to address some of the risk factors that have to do with falls. Of course, uh, chronic muscle weakness, particularly in the lower extremities, is an excellent predictor of falls. Uh, obviously, muscle strength and the girth of, uh, for example, your quadriceps femoris muscle group is going to be uh, a negative predictor, uh, predict fewer falls, if you will. Uh, but it's kind of the last one that uh, interests me the most. The fear of falling can actually paralyze individuals. Um, we did a study here in Iowa City where we compared, and this is certainly not a clinical trial. It's, it's more of an evaluation of a program than it is a, a, a really high-end high type of research experiment. But nevertheless, what we did was we compared folks who participated in our strength training program sometime over the previous year to a comparable group who um, did attend the senior center, was otherwise pretty healthy, same age, same mix of males and females. They actually were regular exercisers for the most part. Uh, what they didn't do was do any strength training. So these are the folks who also have um, uh, do some walking, they might do some Tai Chi, they might do some other things. So it's certainly not a inactive comparison group. And what we found out was that the group that did the strength training fell about half as often. About one in four of those individuals fell within the past year, whereas about one half of the folks in the comparison group who, again, were otherwise healthy, fell within the past year. Now, fortunately, nobody got hurt very seriously. Well, there was a a fracture in each group, not, not a skull fracture and not a hip fracture. There was a broken wrist and a broken ankle, which I suppose if you have to break something, that's a little more uh, desirable than breaking a hip. 
But what we also found out was that the people in the comparison group who did not participate in our strength training program, almost all of those individuals fell in their own home. Whereas the group that participated in the strength training, almost all of those folks fell outside their home. And what this kind of hints at to me is that the folks who kind of know that they might be a little at risk for a fall are more inclined to stay in their homes a little bit more. And, you know, I think what also gets my attention from that kind of data is they're falling in a familiar environment. Uh, you should be least likely to fall in your own home because that's very familiar to you. You know where you put things. You're familiar with ascending and descending the steps in your own home. You know where all the obstacles are, and yet that's where they're falling. Whereas the other group, they were all falling, almost exclusively fell someplace outside their home, which tells me they're not afraid to venture out. They're not apprehensive about leaving their home and going out and uh, being independent and being involved in their communities, which ultimately, uh, of course, is, is uh, one of the hidden objectives of my program. Um, I'm going to also put the next two points together. Um, difficulty with activities of daily living, loss of independence. Of course, the audience I'm talking to is probably very familiar with ADLs or activities of daily living. We'll include in that independent activities of daily living. So these are the things that one must be able to do in order to take care of your own body, things like putting on your clothes, uh, taking a shower, combing your hair, brushing your teeth, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, independent activities of daily living would involve um, activities that you need to take care of your home environment. So being able to cook, being able to uh, lift objects, being able to uh, vacuum the rug, walk out to the mailbox and get your get your mail, uh, being able perhaps to drive a car. Those are also kind of independent activities of daily living. And I'll tell you, again, based on my experience, not so much uh, scientific study, but the thing that seems to resonate with older adults when I'm talking to them about getting involved in an exercise program is maintaining independence. There is nothing that older adults treasure more than their independence. Uh, they know they're going to die sometime, uh, and they generally don't tend to be afraid of death. Uh, certainly we don't look forward to it, but it is the loss of independence, the dependency uh, resulting in long-term care for a protracted period of time. Those are the kinds of things, I think, that trouble older adults. Those are the kinds of things that raise their consciousness about exercise. And if I can convince them that exercise and strength training of various types will help them maintain that independence, that really raises their eyebrows, that really uh, resonates with them and, and seems to get them much more motivated than me saying, okay, well, studies have shown that if you go out and you jog throughout most of your life, you're going to live five more years. Well, you know, five more years on a respirator doesn't really jive with a, a lot of people's uh, view of a quality of life. The causes of fall, of course, uh, muscle weakness uh, is the best predictor. This is the fancy word I told you about that uh, kind of means frailty. 
Uh, so if you don't ask your muscles to do a little bit more than they're accustomed to, a principle that we call the overload principle, uh, the muscle fibers will start to deteriorate. Muscles, as you probably know, are made of contractile proteins and you'll start to actually lose proteins. The fibers or the cells are going to start to get smaller. Smaller fibers are basically weaker fibers. Um, now I put muscle fiber type in parentheses because um, it, it, there are at least two fiber types in, in humans. There are the so-called slow twitch fibers, sometimes called red muscle. There is the fast twitch fiber, sometimes called white muscle. In our normal daily activities and, and the routine things that we do every day, from uh, carrying in a bag of groceries to walking down the sidewalk to working in our garden, uh, we tend to use more the slow twitch or the so-called red muscle fiber. It is only when we ask our muscles to do a little bit more work than they're accustomed to that we recruit or we activate the so-called white muscle or the fast twitch muscle. And these are kind of the strength types of fibers, the fibers that are involved in ballistic or near maximum effort types of activities. So running up a flight of steps, picking up a very heavy object, things like that would involve a lot more uh, fast twitch or white muscle fiber. And our, not so much my findings, but the literature pretty much shows uh, in, in much more scientific uh, studies than I've ever done, that uh, when you strength train, uh, particularly when older adults strength train, they get those fast twitch fibers involved and moving again. It's, it's kind of an odd observation, but if you want a real reward as an instructor in, a, in an exercise or a strength training program, all you have to do is kind of give the older adult a functional test one week. A very simple one is a, called the time stands test. How long does it take you to stand up and sit down 10 times? Uh, very easy, field-friendly uh, type of an evaluation. And what we would find out is, uh, particularly for an older adult who is not accustomed to exercise, we give them that test uh, just before we start a program, two weeks later. Uh, they've cut the time uh, 10, 15% that it takes them to stand up and sit down 10 times. Now, are they getting genuine uh, muscle strengthening? Are they adding contractile proteins to their muscle fibers in that short period of time? Probably not. But it seems as though they're kind of activating and reestablishing those neuromuscular pathways that cause those white muscle or fast twitch fibers to start working again. And it is that kind of wake-up call that I hypothesize uh, causes the improved performance. Now, of course, over a sustained period of time, if the person strength trains or walks or really does any sort of exercise that is asking their body to do a little bit more than normal, they're going to get uh, some genuine improvement in uh, muscle fiber function and, and mass. Your muscle fibers are going to get a little bit bigger, uh, often not so much uh, noticeable as it is functionally improving. So uh, it has to do a little bit with muscle fiber type. Uh, balance and gait impairments obviously also uh, will contribute to, to falls and uh, this kind of goes hand in hand with another point I'll make a little bit later. Uh, we use uh, three uh, systems to help us balance. We use uh, the system of equilibrium in our inner ear, the semicircular canals, 
to understand the orientation of our head in space. And as a result, if we move our heads, our bodies will adjust. We use vision, of course, particularly with respect to depth perception, distance of close objects. And then finally, we use joint sense, or the fancy name for that is proprioception, the position of our limbs in space. <clears throat> what happens as we age, of course, is that one or more of those systems starts to uh, break down a little bit and deteriorate. Uh, you can see I'm wearing glasses, so I experienced that about 20 years ago when I was 40. Uh, something that was uh, unfamiliar to me, but uh, certainly I, I can't uh, do very well with uh, close objects if, um, if I take off my glasses. Uh, gait impairments, things like previous injuries, joint uh, replacements, uh, even arthritis uh, can cause us to walk and ambulate a little bit differently. So uh, any of those, uh, the presence of any of those issues would certainly elevate the person's risk factor for a fall. Neurological deficits, these are, these are pretty obvious from as serious to, as a stroke to something a little bit less serious, a TIA. Uh, Parkinson's disease, there are a lot of neurological uh, disorders that are associated with uh, increasing the risk of falls. Musculoskeletal impairments, again, this is kind of the one I wanted to marry with uh, the balanced gait impairments that I mentioned earlier. Uh, arthritis, probably the most notable example. The majority of older adults do have some form of arthritis. For most of us, it's an annoyance, it's a hassle. But if it hurts enough, it's going to change the way we move around. And if we change the way we move around, sometimes that makes us more susceptible to a fall. Uh, it might cause something else to change. So if uh, uh, you have arthritis in your hip, that's going to cause you to ambulate, walk a little bit differently, place your feet a little bit differently. And that can in turn lead to some other kinds of impairments, uh, back pain and things like that. Visual impairments, another one that we could kind of marry with the point I made earlier on balance and gait impairments. So if you have visual deficits, if you have, and interestingly enough, uh, a lot of folks with hearing problems also have balance problems. And that's because, again, as most of you probably know, being in the health-related fields, uh, the mechanism for balance is very close to the mechanism for hearing in the inner ear. Uh, so when you tend to see people starting to have hearing deficits, a lot of times they will have associated balance deficits. Uh, tinnitus or ringing in the ear is associated with uh, some decrements in the individual's ability to balance. Uh, uh, usually that's static balance, and you can see that quite a bit when you ask a person just to balance on one foot for up to a minute. Medications, uh, most of the audience probably knows the uh, risk of drug interactions and unforeseen drug interactions uh, better than I, but uh, certainly uh, that interaction can make the person euphoric, uh, the person can uh, be uh, a little bit lightheaded, have a little vertigo, that of course will contribute to a fall. How much exercise should people get? Well. Most of you are probably familiar with the minimum CDC recommendations of 150 uh, minutes a week of moderate exercise spread over five or more days. Um, 
moderate exercise. What the heck is that? Uh, trying to explain that in terms that day-to-day uh, -day people who are not maybe in the exercise sciences or the medical fields can understand. If you go out and walk briskly and you swing your arms vigorously uh, and you're taking about as long a stride as you can, you're probably walking upwards of four miles an hour. If you are walking rapidly, not quite taking your full stride and not swinging your arms vigorously, you're probably walking about three miles an hour. It's that three miles an hour that is the criterion established by the CDC as moderate exercise. So that's not nearly as ambitious as we've heard for many, many years. Of course, when I was younger, the recommendation was always get 30 minutes of exercise three times a week. The exercise would have to be vigorous and continuous, jogging, biking, swimming, stuff like that. Um, other recommendations were four times a week and 40 minutes each time. And certainly the sidewalks around Iowa City were full of individuals when I was uh, younger in my 20s and 30s. Here as a graduate student and a young professor, uh, you had to reserve a pace on the sidewalk. And of course, well, now the old joggers like me are all older and we're suffering uh, from some joint impairments and some arthritis and it's not quite as easy to go out and run for a half hour on a very hard sidewalk in the middle of winter anymore. You know, you, you've got to like the CDC recommendations and the findings that suggest you don't really have to kill yourself, you don't really have to uh, go through a lot of pain to get some benefit from exercise. It's a, a pretty reasonable kind of prescription that a lot of people, uh, most people we hope, um, could comply with. Uh, more good news, you only have to do it, uh, your half hour five days a week in bouts of about 10 minutes or more. So you can take a 10 minute walk with your dogs in the morning, you can uh, ride the exercise bike for 10 minutes at noon while you watch TV and go out and garden in your uh, outside garden for 10 minutes in the evening. Uh, that satisfies the criteria. And of course you want to mix that up and do different things on different days. And it, it's of course better if you can get all 30 minutes in at one time, but um, not everybody can do that. Some people hurt. Um, actually kind of interesting, one of the tests I used to use with older adults is the half mile walk and we put them on a, a treadmill and just time how long it took them to walk half a mile on a treadmill. And um, I stopped using that test because what would happen is uh, I'd say about 60%, two thirds of the older adults couldn't complete the test. They couldn't walk half a mile. And it wasn't because of emphysema or cardiovascular reasons. It just, their knees hurt, their ankles hurt, their back hurt, their hips hurt, joint problems. So while, you know, we would like everybody to be exercising 30 minutes of time each of the five days they choose to do the exercise, it's, it's not always possible or realistic. Uh, the kind of other interesting thing about this recommendation, at least the first bullet point that you see on your screen, is that the compliance rates for the 30, 30 minutes three times a week recommendation that was prevalent when I was younger uh, was lousy. Uh, most people didn't want to, most people couldn't 
comply with that recommendation. In fact, it was risky for some people, of course. Uh, latent cardiovascular disease, excessive weight made it very difficult for a lot of people to comply. They were frustrated and or scared. So as a result, very, very small percentage of our population, young and old, uh, complied with a judicious exercise recommendation. Uh, I think this recommendation is attainable. I think it is within reach of most individuals. It's reasonable and it's going to still produce benefits and you don't have to take your life in your hands and worry about precipitating a heart attack for the most part when you're exercising moderately. So I think it's a very prudent, reasonable recommendation and hopefully we'll see the compliance rates, uh, particularly among older adults, improve as a result. The other piece of the recommendation I have up here is the muscle strengthening part. Uh, research has shown that you pretty much need to strength train a couple times a week uh, to maintain and maybe slightly improve your muscle strength. Uh, if you want to improve more, obviously you would train three times a week. It should be every other day. You should not strength train on back-to-back -back days, whereas the moderate aerobic exercise, the brisk walk, uh, one could do that five days in a row without any, any uh, any significant uh, joint pain or pain as a result with the muscle strengthening back-to-back -back days would probably uh, result in a lot of muscle soreness. Um, the other good news, um, you need to use light resistance. So remember a lot of the folks that I get in my program are uh, older adults who've never lifted weights in their life. Uh, a lot of them were told that it wasn't good for you, that it would make you muscle bound. Uh, even if they played athletics in high school or college, uh, it wasn't common for uh, athletic teams to do much strength training, even into the 70s. It was uh, somewhat the exception rather than the rule. Of course, they all do now, and that holds for men and women, and it holds for almost any sport. Uh, but uh, there is some apprehension out there among the older adults uh, in our society right now. Uh, hopefully that will change as the young people who are familiar with strength training uh, progress into older adulthood. But having said that, we emphasize light resistance. What do I mean by light resistance? Most of the folks that I work with are using two to five pound hand weights or what we used to call dumbbells. So one in each hand. High repetition, I would rather a person lift a lighter weight more times than a heavy weight fewer times, which is a little bit upside down with respect to, say, something like athletic performance where people want to work, or athletes want to improve their strength. The approach there is uh, heavier uh, resistance and fewer repetitions. But we're working on uh, functional strength more than uh, the kind of strength associated with uh, high-level athletic performance. So I, I think that's a, a reasonable approach. Uh, you want to make sure to work all the major muscle groups, so upper extremities, lower extremities, muscles that move the head around, the neck, as well as the core body strength, which is actually the biggest challenge. It's hard to find good exercises to uh, encourage people to do to do core body strength. A lot of the exercises there are good for core body strength also require individuals to get on the floor. A practical concern is that some older adults, many, 
that I work with have difficulty getting down on the floor, getting up from the floor. So if I do any exercises on the floor, I only make them get down and get up once. Uh, the way I plan my program and um, I try and get a sense of whether they're able and willing to get up and down from the floor on a mat or on a carpet uh, before I, I introduce those exercises. There are some substitutes we can do in a seated or standing position that if the person has pronounced arthritis, if they have a hip replacement, knee replacement, it is uh, obviously not a lot of fun to get up and down from the floor. Um, just to give you an idea about the kinds of gain you can get across the bottom of this diagram, and I'm sorry it's a little blurry, but uh, you have the exercise dosage. So a person doing no exercise, mild exercise is something south of uh, three miles an hour as a walk. Moderate exercise is our CDC recommendation, a vigorous walk or a brisk walk. Heavy exercise would probably be represented by jogging. Uh, the good news, and, and on the left, on the vertical column, is some sort of fitness outcome. So you could put a 12-minute walk in there. You can do arm strength, leg strength, hand-eye coordination. Uh, you can put balance over there. You can put a dynamic balance. How well do they walk through an agility course that you've set up? Uh, there's a lot of functional fitness outcomes and assessments that you could look at. But... I want you to notice the trajectory or the slope of the line that you get the most gain going from none to mild and mild to moderate. You're still going to get some improvement when you go from moderate to heavy, but not nearly as much. The curve starts to flatten out. So when I approach exercise, I'm a recreational therapist. I'm not a cardiologist. I'm not a certified strength trainer. I'm none of those things. I, I train people to do exercise programs for the Arthritis Foundation in the state, and it's pretty much the mild to moderate range that's my area of expertise and the area that I tend to emphasize in my programs. And to me, the biggest thing is getting people up out of the chair and getting them doing something mild exercise. Once we get them doing something, trying to get them motivated to notch it up just a little more to get to that brisk walk level, light, lifting a few light weights. And at that point, I'm done. I, I actually have had some seniors that have participated in my programs and were so pleased with the results. And they used to be a shot putter or a javelin thrower or a sprinter or a cross-country runner when they were younger and they want to get back into a higher level of performance. Uh, a couple of them have gone on to participate in Senior Olympics. Uh, you know, that's great. And I refer them to somebody who is uh, uh, a more ex has more expertise in that area. Uh, I certainly don't fancy myself a physical therapist or a person who's doing a prescriptive rehabilitative program. I, I call that mild to moderate exercise range, uh, recreational level exercise. And uh, that's what I do. And to me, uh, if I can get people engaged in kind of putting their car, so to speak, in gear, involved in exercise, and they want to take it further, that's kind of up to them. So that's the kind of level of exercise that I'm involved in. Promoting exercise for older adults. Uh, this is a lot about motivation. Uh, the first bullet point there says a place for seniors, but don't call me old. 
in the best of all worlds, older adults could exercise side by side with young adults and folks who are middle-aged and nobody would think anything of it. Nobody would feel embarrassed. Nobody would feel like uh, I can't do that as well as that person can, can do that, so therefore I shouldn't do it. But the fact of the matter is that older adults know they can't match up. Uh, so if you go to a fitness center and there are a bunch of young people running around on treadmills, that discourages rather than encourages older adults. It reminds them of what they can't do anymore, that they could do when they were younger. Um, so having a place, a separate place, and I don't like to encourage segregated exercise programs, but the fact of the matter is, at least initially, Older adults respond better in a place that is segregated from young people and with their peers who understand what they're going through, maybe going through the same thing themselves. Everybody there has a little bit of joint pain. So, you know, it's, it's a collegial or a uh, peer group that knows what's going on. Uh, I put the, but don't call me old in parentheses because it's it's kind of funny, and I'm sorry to admit it's my generation, the, the baby boomers, that uh, don't want to consider themselves senior citizens or older adults or old. Um, and as a result, they tend to stay away from senior centers where a lot of services would actually do them a lot of good. So even though we are the boomers, are the jogging generation, uh, nowadays a lot of uh, my peers have decided to dispense with exercise, uh, but they don't want to feel like, uh, or they don't want to be called old, they won't, don't want to be considered old. Um, I suppose it's a bunch of neuroses that's associated with my generation of, of boomers. But uh, uh, So as a result, even if you have a senior center, uh, a lot of times the people who should be there, who would benefit the most, often don't come. And that's too bad. Um, getting past psychological barriers. These are kind of odd things, and, and this is certainly not hard science, but these are observations that I've made over about 15 years of running exercise programs for older adults. Um, a lot of older adults have a problem of paying someone else for them to exercise. It's a foreign concept to them. Many people in my generation, of course, the baby boom generation, uh, had physical education in high school and maybe in junior high, didn't have to pay for that, uh, may have had physical training as part of their military uh, service, didn't have to pay for that, and uh, may have been part of the jogging boom, didn't have to pay for that. So why should I pay someone now uh, for getting involved in exercise? And of course, most exercise programs aren't free. Uh, some are expensive, some are moderate, some charge only a nominal fee. A lot of people have difficulty with that. Uh, the second issue, although it's getting less the case, uh, women exercising. When uh, my wife and I first started this program, we were still working with, I suppose, our parents' generation who were moving into, oh, I guess their 50s and 60s and 70s during the 1990s. And the idea that women exercise uh, uh, much less uh, actually lifted weights was a very foreign concept that we had to kind of get past. Uh, 
I had certainly many conversations with women concerned about becoming muscle-bound and being unfeminine and things like that. Um, once they participated and saw some of the improvements, we quickly got past that barrier. But, of course, one had to uh, convince them to lift the weight in the first place to get past that barrier. Uh, also, with some women, the issue of sweating... <laughs> Sorry to say that, but uh, the issue of sweating seemed to be a barrier. Uh, you can exercise, but you weren't supposed to sweat. And as a notorious sweater myself, I uh, had to uh, kind of grit my teeth and say, well, it kind of comes with the territory sometimes. Uh, uh, we tried to use the word perspire, and that seemed to be a, maybe a little bit more palatable, palatable to the women. but. Uh, as we see women of, of the baby boom generation and, of course, Generation X and Generation Y, uh, where women's athletics, women exercising is more um, accepted and more routine and more the norm, um, hopefully maybe we'll get past a couple of these barriers. Uh, support systems. Uh, who provides the instruction? Now, of course, I provide the instruction, and, of course, now that I'm an older adult, uh, I'm a peer instructor, and I'm pretty well accepted. Um, the programs that I run, I do because it's an opportunity to get my students involved and to get them some practical experience working with seniors and running exercise programs. And I'll tell you one thing, the older adults that we have in our classes love young people. Uh, they'll talk their legs off. They'll they'll. You know, the whole room perks up when, when the young people come in and, and lead some of the exercises. And it, it's uh, uh, a nice thing to watch. And it's not intuitive. You think that older adults would kind of reject uh, leadership from a young person. But that's not been my experience at all. <clears throat> they really love to have the young people in, 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 in there and leading the classes. One of the other features over at the uh, Senior Center is a uh, strength training room. This is not actually the room I use for my exercise program. I use a separate room and we use free weights that are unattached. <clears throat> but in the strength training room there are some uh, strength training machines and that's more of a drop-in situation. I think there are eight, perhaps a few more machines now. I know the Senior Center keeps trying to acquire um, more machines and uh, Initially, uh, the seniors who attended the Senior Center were reluctant to use that room, and I think it was because they didn't know how to use the machines. And so what the uh, staff at the Senior Center did was start uh, to have a person there to act as a supervisor, usually a young person, and that uh, the older adults, when they wanted some help, would have somebody that they could ask to demonstrate how to use the machine to give a little moral support and encouragement to the individual. They wanted to know that they were doing the exercises properly. So that kind of spontaneous instruction and the availability of someone who at least knew how to use the machines uh, seemed to be very helpful with respect to getting people involved in the exercise program. This was kind of on their own. Okay, uh, take a little bit more macro view here. Uh, how do we deliver a mild to moderate exercise program? Who should be trained and how much training is needed? Well, 
my own bias, again, uh, my area is that mild to moderate range of exercise. I'm not into promoting vigorous exercise. I'm not trained at that level. But I think also we'll get the most gain if we can get people out of the out of the sofa and out of the chair up doing mild to moderate exercise. So who and how much training is needed? Well, I like to think that uh, individuals involved in health-related professions can be trained to lead such programs. So counselors and nurses and social workers and uh, recreational therapists and people who are not necessarily central to a rehabilitation effort, and in particular, cardiac rehabilitation, physical therapists, rehabilitation nurses, cardiologists, and other related physicians. Um, I don't think we're going to be very successful if we say, well, we must have uh, a physician there supervising a physical therapist running this kind of mild to moderate exercise program. It's not that certainly they couldn't do it, certainly they could, but if we want to disseminate it and get most older adults involved in exercise, we're going to have to rely on some paraprofessionals, some health-related professions to deliver those programs. How much training is needed? Well, I think I can accomplish training an individual in about a day, a one-day workshop. In fact, I do that. I'm the state trainer, one of the state trainers for the Arthritis Foundation. I do land-based exercise training. I do aquatic-based exercise training, and it takes us. We do a one-day workshop. The first and the person completing the workshop then it takes a certification exam, and they, if they pass the exam, they're credentialed for three years, and then they have to renew the credential, go through a, a mini training every three years after that. So. It's, it's not rocket science, it's probably, it, it's not probably, it, it is very practical stuff. Um, and uh, I think uh, if we expect a lot of people to adopt a regular exercise habit, we're going to have to draw in some other health-related professions beside those with a, the, the high-level training. Um, the other, another observation I have is that uh, just working with different groups of different ages. I've worked at uh, s uh, skilled nursing facilities and delivered a, a modified program. I've worked at, at assisted living. I've worked in the community with the well elderly. I've worked in all kinds of situations and done demonstrations and programs in all kinds of situations. And uh, to me, just kind of ballparking, we have three different cohorts or groups that we're working with in terms of what they're able to do, how well they're able to function. Uh, our first group, the pre-elderly, the 50 to 65, um, technically, I suppose, in some circles, if you're 50, you're an older adult. Uh, I believe AARP, to be a member, you have to be 50. I think to be a member down at the Iowa City Senior Center, you have to be uh, 50. So I guess if you're 50, you qualify. Um, and I do get some folks who are in their 50s um, and early 60s in my programs. For the most part, um, they're pretty much 100% functional, uh, unless they have some latent disorder that we need to be cautious of, and certainly we want to know that. Uh, but they can do most things. They don't have much difficulty getting down on the floor, doing some exercises, getting up from the floor, 
maybe doing a little bit more than I would normally introduce to the second group. Uh, the early to mid-elderly, I guess uh, the bottom border on that age group, I, you know, 60, I, I struggle with whether I should say 65 or 70 here. Uh, it seems like 70, we see a lot of changes with respect to capability, uh, even if the person is, is active. Uh, but this group, uh, this is kind of my target group. These are the people I most commonly work with in the community setting is the 65 to 80 year old group. Um, they're starting to experience some deficits. Uh, they might have a few manifested chronic conditions, uh, quite a bit of arthritis, as you might guess, uh, some high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, some other related disorders like that. There might have been a fracture in there as a result of a fall. Uh, probably with this group, for the most part, uh, not a lot of hip replacements, but an occasional one, uh, an occasional knee replacement. Then our late retirees, our 80-plus group, these are the folks that are starting to get pretty frail, especially if they haven't had a regular exercise program, although certainly just because they're 80, it doesn't mean that they're uh, automatically going to be frail, I can remember, and I'll show you later on a picture of a group I work with at a assisted living center. Um, the oldest person in the group was 98, and she was the fittest person in the group. Uh, she would walk uh, vigorously before she came to our exercise group, and then we would work out for about an hour. Uh, she was very fit, very clear, very capable, probably the most mobile and the most functional member of our group, and the oldest member of the group. So I don't want to... Uh, uh, characterize everybody who's over 80 as, as frail and, and at risk for a fall. Certainly, you know, the best of all worlds, it wouldn't be the case. Okay, so how do we get older adults to kind of stick with a program? Um, it seems like structure and scheduling makes a difference. Uh, structure insofar as they like to have um, an individual there to lead the exercises, even if they know the exercises. The same thing with the schedule. Um, so to get involved in my class down at the senior center, one must sign up and you schedule, you know, usually is going to meet 9.30 Tuesday, Thursday. Um, and then I say to him, well, look, I'm not only going to teach you and demonstrate the activities and the exercises, but once we do this, you're going to be able to do this yourself. Next semester, we have the same program, same people are there. And I said, well, why do you come back? And they said, well, they like to have it on my schedule. I like to know that it's going to be in the same place, at the same time, on the same days of the week with the same people. It's predictable, I suppose. Uh, take the next two bullet points together. Someone has my back and the social interaction. Um, it's important that, and I, I've raised this point earlier, that the older adult be exercising with peers, with people who understand what they're going through and have gone through the same thing. Sharing that same history, not only in terms of their health and function, but also in terms of uh, their life experiences, makes the group more cohesive. And social interaction is very important. Um, a lot of people discourage talking in their exercises groups and, and uh, 
want people to be quiet and pay attention all the time. I don't do that. I encourage interaction. I encourage talking. We tell jokes. We tell stories. Uh, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And, and I think that social interaction, that fun element, if you will, um, helps people come back time after time. And, and knowing that your friend or your peer is going to be there encourages me to be there. I have to kind of hold up my end of that commitment. So the compliance rate for my exercise program is actually pretty good. Uh, most of the people attend about 80% of the classes that I offer uh, once they actually commit themselves uh, to participate. We need to alter people's thinking about exercise. We need to help them think about it as a lifestyle habit, as something you do every day. You get dressed, you eat breakfast, uh, you eat three meals a day, you get eight hours of sleep, and I exercise. That's part of my day, it's part of who I am. And once you find people in, embracing exercise and making it part of their day, I think you're gonna find your compliance rates are gonna be a lot better because now it's normal. Now it is a thing that I do and that my friends do and we think of it as, you know, uh, uh, I think of my day as incomplete unless I've done my exercise. It's also kind of a payoff for some facilities that get underutilized. Um, I have lots of friends, of course, in the in the recreation business. That's That's kind of what I do is uh, train individuals to run recreation centers, to work with individuals in recreation programs with disabilities. Um, and one of my friends said that uh, you build a pool not to make money, but to attract people to your community. Well, one way you can extend the use of the pool, even though pools are underutilized, is to use the pool as an exercise uh, environment. Uh, one of the training programs that I do for the Arthritis Foundation involves aquatic exercise, a very popular option among individuals experiencing pronounced arthritis because the buoyancy of the water takes much of the weight off of the joints or minimizes the weight bearing on the joints and makes movement and exercise a lot less painful. The other thing the water does, even though it takes weight off the joints, is it provides resistance. The weight of the water must be moved around, and uh, it promotes strength and, uh, strength gains as a result. Finally, um, the product exercise must be valued by the potential consumer, and I go back to a point I made earlier there. Uh, it's valuable if your consumer, your exerciser, your older adult can see that it promotes independence. That's what they value. Uh, I know older adults who <clears throat> have a car parked in the garage and I ask them, well, do you, do you still drive? Nope. Uh, do you value or why don't you sell the car? Oh, no, I couldn't do that. And I've been trying to figure out, well, why is it that they want to keep that car even though they don't need it and they don't use it? Um, well, they might need it, but they don't use it. And it's a, a symbol of their independence. And to surrender that means that I'm more dependent. And I think, uh, you know, if, if we can convince people <laughs> participating in a regular exercise program is going to promote that independence, I think they'll value that at least as much as that car in the garage that they're not using. <clears throat> 
how risky is exercise for older adults? Well, like I said, uh, my area of expertise is mild to moderate exercise. Uh, you want to be wise, you want to be prudent, you don't want to be pushing people uh, <clears throat> into areas of exercise and intensities of exercise that's going to endanger them and, and certainly make you irresponsible and liable. Some organizations have uh, their participants sign off as a whole, with a hold harmless waiver. You've probably seen those uh, before. Uh, I do encourage my students to purchase liability insurance. It's usually uh, not very expensive because what we do isn't very risky. Uh, we do consult the individuals or ask individuals who participate in our program to consult their physicians uh, to get a release. Uh, I can say that over 15 years of doing uh, our strength training program, again, remember, light resistance, and we have a descriptive statement that the person can give to their physician or read to their physician over the phone. Not one physician has said, my patient, my consumer can't or shouldn't ex uh, participate in our exercise program. And I've had individuals with bypass surgery. I've had individuals with emphysema participate in our program and without incident. So again, it's that mild to moderate level that we encourage. Uh, we also encourage an atmosphere of do what you can, but if it hurts, stop, don't do as much, do it slower. Uh, it's, it's not a competition. And I think the fact that we keep it uh, fun, we keep it social, we keep it interactive also kind of encourages, you know, no one looks down on somebody else who can't do as many repetitions or can't lift as much weight. Uh, it's a supportive environment and uh, that's a good thing. In terms of credentials, um, you know, my own bias, I'm most familiar with the Arthritis Foundation Exercise Certification Program. They have both a land-based training program and aquatic training program. Uh, right now, the aquatic seems to be the more popular of the two. The land-based uh, certainly is an option, too. And it's in the land-based, actually, that the Arthritis Foundation has, for the first time, uh, actually uh, said that we can start using some light weights. Uh, now, in my strength training program, of course, I've done that for many years. But that sort of certification gives you the foundation, the practical foundation, that you need to run an exercise program and help folks get a good result without uh, engendering a lot of risk. Uh, it doesn't make you an exercise physiologist. It doesn't make you a cardiologist or a physical therapist, but it's enough to get the job done. Um, this is a busy little slide, and I'll let you read <clears throat> most of this on your own. I suppose you can print this out or uh, go back to the slide and read all of these. But this is uh, uh, the screening uh, mechanism that we use. This is uh, besides giving the physician or reading to the physician a description of our program, uh, we also uh, have our exercisers complete uh, this is simple yes-no answers to all of these. If you have a yes answer to any of these, uh, we want them to consult their physician. Uh, the most common yes answers, uh, number five, bone or joint that could be aggravated. Um, a lot of folks that are older adults have arthritis, and sometimes your joints hurt, and that's kind of comes with the territory of getting older. 
Uh, blood pressure is another one where uh, uh, we have quite a few older adults with high blood pressure. But again, uh, if that flag goes up, they consult with their physician. And again, after we describe what our program entails, no physician has turned us down. No physician. In fact, I've got a very friendly and uh, productive relationship with quite a few physicians around town, and they even refer patients to the senior center for exercise. And there's lots of choices. Uh, you certainly, I'm not trying to sell my program. I don't. I don't need extra consumers. I have a full class every time. So. Uh, but there are lots of choices. There are a little bit more cardiac or cardio-oriented classes. There's a little bit more aggressive strength training. You can do balance training. You can do Tai Chi, uh, various dance classes, yoga. Uh, you name it, they have it. And it's uh, really a wonderful facility. Uh, last diagram I have here, or slide I have here, this is the uh, folks that I worked with at the uh, Assisted Living Center. Of the, I think there's 12, if I'm counting right, 12 or 13 older adults in this picture. Uh, of the uh, 12 here or 13 here, all but two came to our program in walkers. So we did all, you can kind of see some of the walkers back here. Uh, we did a lot of exercises in the seated position. We did a lot of exercises with them standing on either side of a chair or on either side of the walker. Uh, and it worked just fine. We did uh, strength training. We did a lot of stretching. Uh, we did a lot of flexibility. Uh, had no problems at all. Um, oh, the other thing I should have mentioned about the CDC recommendation is that uh, they do recommend that you stretch and do flexibility exercises um, every day. Uh, this, in fact, is the group where one of the uh, individuals, <clears throat> the fittest individual in the group is 98. Uh, so there's a 98-year-old in there somewhere. Uh, it's uh, not this guy. That's me. This is one of my assistants. This is another one of my assistants. So see if you can guess the 98-year-old. Uh, she's the person who walked before we uh, actually uh, started our program. Every day she'd be walking for about 45 minutes and then come and do her strength training. Uh, remarkable individual. Uh, so anyway, I uh, hope uh, I've been able to offer you some uh, useful information. Uh, the information I had is a uh, glean more from practice than, than research, but uh, you know, I think if you emphasize uh, how exercise in general and strength training specifically will help you maintain your independence and avoid falls, uh, uh, you'll be ahead of the game. and. Uh, Certainly would encourage anybody interested in promoting and running programs for older adults to do so. Get a little bit of training, be smart, be prudent, and you should get good results. And thank you very much.